Deborah Meaden, it is very special to have you with me for 20 questions with. My first question to you is, why are you so passionate about the environment? When did that first happen with you? And and can you explain to us why it's important that we're all passionate about it? I don't really know why. when I started being passionate about the environment. I, I think I always have been. I've always loved animals. I've always been fascinated. I actually had a snail hospital when I was about five. I mean, technically, it was just a plank with a sign that said hospital. Um, but but even then, you know, I was I was really conscious of of life and nature. And and as I said, I think that's partly to do with 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 loving animals, being outside, spending time um, appreciating them. But of course, I wasn't thinking in terms of being worried about the environment. And that was just I just want to get outside. I want to play. I want to you know I want to be amongst nature. And and actually, when I I did my uh, my thesis at business uh, college. I was 19, so it's 45 years ago. It was on climate change. So, you know, between me having a snail hospital at five and, and going to business studies, I was already becoming aware of, of the issues around the environment. And why should we all care about it? Well, uh, I mean, there's many reasons. The reason I care about it, I love nature and I can see, you know, it has enough issues. It's amazing, you know, that life exists at all. Nature offers struggles to to life. You know, it it isn't easy for any creature, any plant um, to survive. We're all fighting for our space. But then humans are layering all of the difficulties of life with making it even harder for nature um, because we're not satisfied with the space we've got. You know, we want to own everything. We want to have all of the space and all of the air, you know, and and, and all of the water. Um, so I, I think that that if you love nature, there's obviously reasons to worry about the environment or care about the environment. If you don't, then on a purely selfish basis, we can't survive without without nature, without biodiversity, without the food that nature gives us, um, without the interactions of the creatures around us, you know, no bees, no pollination. So um, so on a purely selfish basis, if we just want to survive, we have to take care of our cohabitants of this planet. I personally need to do much more to adapt my lifestyle to be compliant with my philosophy, I guess, which is that we do all need to do much more to help the environment. You have adapted your lifestyle quite significantly fairly recently. I have. I mean, I'm not perfect. There's always more to do. Um, but I, you know, I, I've become completely plant based. The house we're at at the moment, uh, you know, we don't spray. We allow, I mean, basically most of it's left to wildlife. We do have a sort of a tight area around the house that is garden. But even all of that is is quite wild garden. You know, I don't mind rats and mice and not, I don't mind. I love grasslings. You know, I love it when you walk, we walk down through the field and you can just see the rustling of life going on. I love insects. You know, I don't, we don't spray for insects. Well, you get insects, you get bats, you get grasslings, you know, uh, uh, that, you know, so, so I, it, it's funny, isn't it? It's, it's like a mindset switch. And instead of thinking everything's a nuisance and getting in our way, thinking, thank goodness for you, because you're helping me survive, you know, thank goodness you're here on the planet. And, you know, it's amazing 
how balanced our property. It's only 26 acres. I mean, 26 acres is still quite a lot, but 26 acres. And it's amazing how it self-balanced itself, just letting us leaving it alone, really. Take us back to your childhood and, and to this into the snail hospital, but not just the snail hospital. What was growing up like for you and, and, and how rural was it? So it was a bit of an odd life, to be honest, because um, until I was about six, my mother was on her own. She'd been married unsuccessfully, divorced when I was a baby, so I didn't really know about it um so she was spending a lot of time at work that meant that we um you know we we went to stay with this fantastic family called the Canams. they lived nine belfield avenue and brightling sea and they had this huge long garden i think that's that might be where my love of the outdoors was because big swing at the end that we used to grow vegetables we had our own little garden plot whenever we possibly could i mean the house was tiny they had their own three daughters um, and then they took on Gail and I, five of us in a three bedroomed house with mum and dad um, with one of the bedrooms. So, you know, we were quite so. So we kind of had to go out and play outside. And and I but they made that fun. It wasn't just get outdoors. You know, it's just like, oh, I can't wait to get outside because we're going to we're going to build a rockery or we're going to you know, we're going to plant this and we're going to pick that. Um, so I think probably that's where certainly if I don't know, I do believe you're kind of born with an innate understanding or connection with nature but I think that's where it was nurtured what was school like hated school I really did not enjoy school um I'm not a great rule abider <laughs> a bit of a pain in the neck to be honest at school I mean, you know I was that very annoying child that would be constantly asking why when it was the rules you know why have we got to walk up the stairs on the left hand side why have we got to wear different shoes for this and that and so I think um I couldn't wait to get out of school to be perfectly honest I wasn't silly obviously I'm not stupid um but uh the topic the teachers that I liked the topics that really engaged me you know my my um then, then I was good at those. And if I didn't like something, I, I just didn't, you know, I was just annoying. I just, just, just sat it out. It's interesting. My father gave me my um, old school reports. And you think at the time, nobody understands you. You know, nobody gets you. And boy, did they know what I was about. You know, they absolutely, they, they got me down to a T. So what was it then, do you think, that most prepared you for a life as a successful businesswoman? We did have quite a strange childhood. So so uh, for a while, my parents had a business inside Butlins. Um, and so in the school holidays, I would be I'd actually often be working, um, even at the age of 10, properly working. But all, but then I'd go back to the to I was at boarding school. for uh, Well, I went to boarding school when I was seven, actually. Um, it wasn't a posh boarding school, but it you know, it was still boarding school. And it was a more rarefied environment than Butlins. So so I we had this, I mean, I think it's a huge gift that we spanned our lives from spending time at Butlins during the holidays um, and then going back to boarding school. And it really taught me um, how to, you know, well, it really taught me to value people as they were, you know, that it, I didn't matter where they come from, how they spoke, what they did. Um, you know, just I just when I meet people, I'm all about. So, you know, what are you about? What is it that you care about? It really doesn't bother me, you know, what their background is, you know, um, whether they went to boarding school, whether or not they went to grammar school. I went to grammar school eventually. Uh, so I so I think that was a That was a little bit of a gift having this odd childhood. Um, most people kind of find their place in society and stay within that. And we didn't. We kept moving across across the different parts of society. And you spent time as a young woman in Italy, cutting your teeth in in doing business. Tell us a little bit about that and how that helped prepare you. 
Well, I I'd, um, I couldn't wait to leave school. I certainly was no intention of going to university. Bit of treading water. I wanted to go to Brighton. This is my genuinely my motivation. Um, I thought, well, I'm going to go into business. I want to leave home. I don't really know how, what to do, but I do understand. And I have learned this in life. If you, ch- if you don't change, sorry, if you do nothing, nothing changes. So, you know, I, I am a person who changes the subject you know changes scenarios so I thought gonna go to Brighton have a fantastic you know have a ball popped into college every now and then just about scraped through um and then uh, and then again you know I, I thought well now what now what brief time in London but it kind of wasn't catching there wasn't something that I was really passionate about so I had an ex-boyfriend who'd gone over to Italy he was a fashion designer and I just thought well you know I'll pop out to Italy and I'll see what happens and sure enough went over to Italy and um and found four convinced four businesses. I was 19 at the time, but convinced four businesses that uh, I should be their agent back in the UK. And that was kind of my first proper business. Tell us about failure and how important failure can be in helping you be successful. Well, so my Italian business, uh, which was bringing back beautiful goods, beautiful goods. I, I, um, I was, I took the this lovely collection to uh, to top drawer. And I got orders from Harrods and Harvey Nichols and, you know, Liberties and all the top end stores. Um, and that was fantastic, hugely successful. And then the next season came round and I wasn't getting any orders. That's weird. And I started seeing the products appear in the stores and what was happening. And they were bypassing me, just sending directly into the stores. They kind of used me as an entry point. Um, and I realized, you know, either I could spend my life, I had them under contract. I could these the Italian companies under contract. Either I can spend my time fighting them, or I can just take this as, as a lesson in life. And uh, and I took that as a lesson in life and thought, okay, uh, now I, you know, I, that's my first my my first experience in business, and I've learned a huge amount. But it cost me money, you know. At the time, it was only three thousand pound, but it was three thousand pound that I didn't. Well, three thousand pound was worth a lot more then. But also, if you don't have three thousand pound, it is it is a fortune. So, so you know, my first business was a failure, and and but it's very motivating. And whilst it was a failure on a financial level, you know, boy, did I learn stuff. And I think that's how we kind of need to see failure. You know, there's always, always something to learn from getting something wrong. And give us a little insight into the big successes of your business career. Um, I think probably the one that is, you know, that I'm known for and sort of catapulted me from from sort of working in business to being able to invest in businesses uh, was Westar Holidays. So it was a business that um, my parents had bought, a holiday park business, my parents had bought it um in 1989 and uh by 1993 or 1994 um I'd moved over I I they said to us look you know do you do you want to be involved in this business because we're going to bring in professional managers and actually now's your moment and and I thought well actually I've had several businesses I've done okay but I really do like the uh leisure industry so I came into Westar Holidays and uh and in 1999 I did a management buyout um and by the end of my tenure we were doing about a we had about 150,000 people a year taking holidays with us so so you know to me that felt a that 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 was a real you know uh, that that was really where I I went from from just sort of earning and working and having you know having quite successful businesses um to one because when we sold Westall that was we sold that for 33 million um pounds so that was suddenly I felt like oh my goodness <laughs> gosh <laughs> I've actually got some money in the bank I'm curious to know what it was like and whether it's changed as well being a woman in business 
Um, I don't see myself as a woman in business, actually. And that's a really interesting question, because when I imagine when I first started Dragon's Den, I was the only woman on the panel. And all of the interviewers would say to me, so what's it like being the only woman in Dragon's Den? And I was like, well, I'm not really the only woman in Dragon's Den. I'm an investor. And uh, being in business or being an investor, it's quite gender neutral. Because customer in business, your customer doesn't care what gender you are. They're just interested in what product or service that you're offering them. So that could, that's, that can be very gender neutral. Um, and uh, and being an investor, it's the same thing. My money isn't gender, you know, isn't gender based. Um, do you want my investment or don't you want my investment? So I don't count myself as a woman in business. Other people look at me as a woman in business, but I, and, and a lot of women say to me, you know, how do you deal with being a woman in business? And I say, well, the best thing I can ever say to you is don't wear it as a badge. Don't think of yourself as a woman in business, because if you do, it sends a clear signal that being a woman is an important part of, of, of the conversation. And as far as I'm concerned, it, you know, it's, it kind of doesn't matter <laughs> what gender I am. You know, I'm either good at what I do or I'm not good at what I do. Despite that, and, and I totally get it, I still feel that there, I say this as a man, but I still feel there's a lot of progress that we need to do as a society to to, to, to get to a point where there is proper gender equality. And, and I wonder whether you agree with that. And if you do, how much progress needs to be done and, and, and how do we get there quicker? So I absolutely agree with that, um, uh, because also I would say that because I've owned my businesses, I've generally been the customer. So people have had to deal with me, you know, that, well, they've had to deal with me without taking anything else into account. They either do business with me and behave themselves or they don't do business. <laughs> I'll find somebody else to do business with. That's fine. So I've always, so when you're the buyer, it's much, much easier to uh, choose the people that you want to work alongside. But I do see, obviously, um, I, I, you know, I see there are issues in business and, that, you know, this is why I talk to women about it. Both parties have a part to play. You know, women have a part to just just keep doing what they're doing and being very good at what they are without allowing themselves to be knocked back. And, and men need to find a, find the language, you know, because sometimes it's just about language. You know, it's about language and um uh, uh, and I try not to genderize certain characteristics, but it is true, you know, uh, it is true that, 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 that there are different behaviors. Women tend not to put themselves forward quite so much. They don't shout about the things that they're really good at. Um, and I think women need to l- learn to do that better, to bring their qualities to, to, to people's attention. Men probably need to learn to do that a little less um, because that's when you get you get noise from one gender that kind of suppresses the voices of the other gender. So I I think that's a really important thing that we need to do. We need to find our language and our common voice. Unless I've got my maths wrong, I I think I'm right in saying that you've been at Dragon's Den for over a decade and a half. Oh, yeah. So I'm about to film. We're about to start filming series 19 for me. What is it like? Can you, can, can you take us behind the scene? <laughs> What's it like? People well, always want. People always want to know, don't they? Because they they, they see it. It's a big BBC show. They know you from Dragons Den. They love the show, and and then they want to know what it's actually like to film it, to make it, to be part of it. Well, I would say that it is as close to real life as you can get on television. So yes, it's a studio, and yes, there are cameras around. 
But because we're all business people and not actors and not one of us has had any media training, once the entrepreneur comes in, and it is genuinely our money, once the entrepreneur comes in, we are absolutely laser focused on that entrepreneur and unaware of what goes on around us in the in the studio. So, um, but it is television, you know, so, so the entrepreneur is probably more nervous than you would normally get um, if they're coming into pitch. Uh, some of those pitches, we, we cut the entrepreneurs a little bit more slack than, than you would see on television because it is a television program. It's going to be boring for everybody if they sit there for five minutes watching somebody stumble, you know, so that bit's edited. Some of the pitches last, I think the longest one I've been in is three and a half hours. Those get edited down to 15, 20 minutes. So um, so you kind of see the highlights and, and also people watching what goes on in the den. I mean, we talk, we, there's a lot of repetition in business. Um, so people watching what goes on in the den um, do need to remember that that it's it's storytelling. So you're not going to see the whole you're not going to every time a picture comes in, you're not going to hear us going. So what's this and what's that? And how does that mean? You know, they're, they're going to pull out the bits that are fresh and interesting and and are telling a story and, are, you know, lifting the lid on business. I mean, the editing is magic because you know how they manage to get the essence of a three hour pitch and boil that down into something that when I watch it, I think, you know, that's actually absolutely reflective of what went on. And I would say that in my 18 series that we've seen so far, probably once or twice I've ever thought, not quite sure. Mainly, I think, wow, that is that is that has really boiled the essence of that pitch down. Would you have become the investor you are today on the scale that you invest today if it hadn't been for Dragon's Den? No, I think it would have been different. So I um, I find myself very much now at the SME end of the scale because at the startup end, and, and I do actually love that. I probably wouldn't have done that. I would have probably been investing in bigger businesses. I would have been less involved in those businesses. But through Dragon's Den, I you know, and I'm spending time with startups and 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 the smaller end. So I and and I actually have realized that that's the bit that I like. It's a very dangerous bit for young businesses. Most businesses are fail, you know, they're going to fail in the first couple of years, they're going to fail. I like playing my part in helping them through that bit. Um, you know, so that so that if they move on and a lot of these businesses, you know, I've invested in, they've either bought their shares back or we've sold, you know, we've or get next round of investment and I might have exited or we've sold. I very much see my part in getting them through that and getting them ready to make sure that, you know, that they're, ne- that they're sound for the next stage. Do you enjoy the fame and the profile that being on TV has brought you? Um, so I consider myself very lucky with the opportunities that now come my way, the conversations I can have, the people that I've met. Most people will answer the phone if I if I ring them, you know. So, I mean, that's amazing. When I used to think how hard I used to work um, at, at Westar, you know, trying to get people's attention or get us a piece on the television or whatever. So that bit I love. I don't like fame for fame's sake, but I do like Dragon's Den style fame because when people approach me in the street, or they or, or or I'm out and people want to talk to me. It's not kind of all oh, please can have your autograph. It's they want to talk about the thing that I love. I love business. So so they you know they want to talk about ideas that they've got, um, <laughs> investments that they might want. So I it, it, it's not a crazy fame. It's it's uh it's but I don't like fame. It was what when they first asked me if I would do it, the reason I said no was I didn't want the fame. You know, I didn't, I like going about my life, doing the things that I want to do, 
in the manner that I want to do them. And I was worried that being in a media spotlight was going to knock that off course. As it happens, I've realised that if you you can find your place in all of that that you're comfortable with, and I have. You use your platform on Twitter, as do I, sometimes to be political. And do you kind of in, do you enjoy having that voice? Do you enjoy perhaps having an influence in the political world that has been earned through your business success and your 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 fame from television? I, I, Matthew, I'm oddly not political. I know that sounds crazy. I don't want to be political. I don't. I just want my government to be good, get on with what they're doing, provide me with the landscape so I understand, provide me with a vision and the landscape so that that me, my businesses that I'm involved with, other businesses can just get on with their job of doing business and delivering whatever that vision is. I don't want to be having a conversation about politics, but you can't not at the moment. I kind of feel a responsibility to highlight some of the issues that are often going under the radar and, and we really should know about. And we should really should get quite excited about excited good and excited bad. So I I feel like I, it's more of a responsibility. I'm not sure I enjoy it. I just feel like someone's going to have to say this because this is this is not right, you know. Or this is great. Um, unfortunately, at the moment, it's mainly this is not right. How important, Deborah, is hard work generally in business, but also in life, and specifically in 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 your success over the years. So I am a, uh, I'm naturally a doer in life. So I quite like working, even though, you know, Paul's always saying to me, just making stuff up to do now, aren't you? I'm not a, I'm not an anxious person at all, people. I don't worry. I really am not a worrier. Um, but I do like doing stuff. So, um, so I think hard work has come very naturally to me. I also had a mother, parents actually work very hard. So, so surrounded by a, um, sort of models of people working hard. But it is true to say that you can work really hard your entire life and end up with not a lot. So it isn't the only thing. You know, you can't just say I worked hard and therefore I deserve it Um, because a lot of people work hard and they don't get the end rewards. So there has to be more than hard work. (laughs) Frankly, I've also seen people who really don't work very hard and have done really well out of life. So hard work definitely ain't the guarantee. What's the meaning of life? What is the meaning? It's 42, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, apparently, according to Douglas Adams, it's 42. <laughs> what, what is it? What sort is of a it? meaning of life. It was in the restaurant at the end of the universe, I think. <laughs> it was 42. Um, what's the meaning of life? I I don't spend an awful lot of time worrying about that. What I do do is um, I want to live the life that I'm comfortable with, and I don't just mean... You know, I have a comfortable life because I do have a comfortable life. But um, if I am worried about things, and I, sorry, I'm not a worrier because if I'm worried about, if something comes onto my radar and I think we need to do something about that, then I have a responsibility to adapt my behavior as well. You know, I can't just say everybody else needs to deal with that. I have to behave in a way that deals with that. And I think that's why I'm not a worrier, because I think I can do what I can do. So for me, I just need to make sure that I I get as I get more right than I get wrong, um, that I contribute more than I take away. Uh, and, and I don't spend too long navel gazing about the meaning of life because, you know, it's just a miracle. Life is a miracle. And and. 
as as I say, as long as I felt I could contribute more than I've taken away, then I I think I will be content. You know, when when the day comes. I've read that you're an atheist. If that's right, why are you an atheist rather than agnostic? I can't. I, so yes, I am an atheist. Um, I I can't pretend that um, I believe in anything other than evolution. It, it's funny when you use the word miracle. Those that I often use words that are rooted in religion, but I don't mean them in a religious way at all. You know, it is a miracle that we exist. So I can't, I can't grasp beyond evolution and and the the circumstances that have come together to to create this amazing world. But I don't, I just don't believe that there's somebody who did this. I just don't believe it. Oddly, I'm quite spiritual, so I don't know how that sits with uh, being an atheist. And what I mean by that is, I do think that there are. We don't know everything. We don't understand everything. But I don't believe it's beings. I think it's the consequences of many things aligning that we just don't understand yet. What are you like as a person? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't got a clue. How can you ask me that? <laughs> You've met me. You tell me. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed meeting you. We were on stage quite recently. I really enjoyed meeting you. But I suppose I asked that partly because you're part of a show called The Dragon's Den. So there might be some people who think you're you're no nonsense. W- what are you like with your friends? What do you like? What do you like when someone comes up to you and, and wants to have a chat about their business? I, mean, I enjoy it. Um, I so what I what I what am I like uh, as a person? I, I am the listen. I don't act. I'm not an actor. So what you see on Dragon's Den is me. It's just a part of me. Um, as I say, you know, three and a half hours edited down to twenty minutes. We all see a much more extreme version of me in that environment. So that's me in business, but an an amplified version of that. I absolutely am no nonsense. I just wish more people were. You know, it would avoid an awful lot of uh, misunderstandings and upsets around. So I am am forthright. I laugh a lot. You know, in life, I I do laugh a lot. So um, whether you whether that me, I I have a sense. I definitely have a sense of humour. I mean, I know I've got a sense of humour. I don't think I'm very funny, but I do find things funny. Um, so so I laugh a lot. I'm forthright. I, it's very important to me that um, I behave in a way that I preach. I think my actions should match my words, and I I am I'm trustworthy. You know, I'm I'm not that person who says, "Oh, don't tell anybody," but I know that I know. People will confide in me because they know if you confide in me, it doesn't go any further. You know, it doesn't. They can seek advice um, and it won't go any further. Um, uh, I don't know. How do you describe yourself? <laughs> I, <don't. laughs> I think you did a pretty good job. Final question. We've rattled through them. You've been admirably brief, but full in your answers, Deborah. Final question. What makes you happy? Or to put it another way, what is a perfect evening for Deborah Meaden? 
Oh, a perfect evening is uh, follows a, a a busy and perfect day. So a perfect. I'm gonna actually. I'm sorry. I'm gonna answer the question I I want you to ask me, Matthew, which is what's my perfect day, which will lead into a perfect evening. So I will. I'll get up in the morning. I'll have a cup of tea. I'll walk around the garden completely barefoot, whether it's rain, sunshine, whatever it is, just connects me to the earth. Um, then I will go riding. I'm a much nicer person when I go riding. I will have said to my PA Charlotte. Um, don't put anything into the diary until uh, midday because then I can ride. This is my perfect day. It doesn't happen all of the time. Um, I will go riding. I'll have a cup of coffee with my sister who I ride with. She's also in business. So we'll, you know, we'll talk about it might be business. It might be the horses. It might be something else. Um, uh, then I will come back and I will. Um, so this is a Somerset based day. Um, and then I will do, I'll have various uh, meetings, usually through Zoom. I might have a board meeting locally. I've got some local businesses. Um, and uh, and then as it gets to, I will stay outside until the, the last drop of light goes. So I might well, I'll either be pottering around in the garden. I'll be putting the chickens away. Um, I will go down and, and, you know, groom the horses or muck the muck the horses out or put them away. So I'll spend as much time around the animals as I possibly can. And then I will sit on the sofa with my husband. I'll go back in. We will eat oh, actually a perfect day. I mean, I'm even going to have a sofa, sofa supper on a perfect day. And uh, we'll sit there and and we'll watch some uh, we'll, we'll watch a box set that we're thoroughly enjoying or we'll just have a chat about stuff uh, because I do have I have quite a very, very varied, very varied and busy, uh, both um, sort of in some, uh, ge geographically busy. So I'm often doing a lot of traveling. So for me, just being able to be around the animals at home, my husband at home um, is is my perfect day. In fact, he's just stuck his head through the door and he's asking me for the keys of the Land Rover, which I've just thrown at him and he's caught. That sounds like a pretty good day to me. I thoroughly enjoyed asking you 20 questions and I've really enjoyed your answers as well. So thank you so much, Deborah, for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me, Matthew.